Welcome to the Just Picks podcast number 353. We have an incredible show for you today, some news, and the first of several shows with nylon string wizard Eric Hansen. First, some news. This show comes to you just as the global COVID pandemic seems to be releasing its grip on the world. Some states in the U.S. are fully open, with retail and entertainment venues back to 100% capacity. While some folks struggle with vaccinations or not, it seems the biggest struggle in the guitar world is getting product. Here's some perspective. In the early part of 2021, about three quarters through the pandemic, in the middle of some of the highest infection rates, music retailers were reporting record sales. Rolling Stone reported in January that Sweetwater, the largest U.S. online retailer, reported sales in excess of $1 billion in 2020 for the first time and saw a 50% customer growth. Guitar Center, although still managing its financial reorganization, reported a 50% growth in online sales. Fender, meanwhile, reported a 17% increase in sales, as well as more than 100,000 new subscribers to their online learning platform. So, that sounds good for the retail business and seems like more folks are playing guitar than ever. However, have you stepped out of your cave to visit your local retailer? The walls are being stretched with 50 guitars hanging where there once was 100. Audio equipment is on multi-month back order and some products have no estimated delivery date. This show is taking place during the summer of 2021. All of the retailers I have interviewed have indicated they are waiting on many products and some have no anticipated date of arrival. So stay tuned for future Just Picks podcast episodes to hear more about the guitar and music industry coming out of the pandemic of 2020 and 2021. Not so long ago, I was thrilled to hear that one of my favorite guitarists was releasing a new album. Guitar and new album are three words I like to see in one sentence. Add the name Eric Hansen, and you now have the best possible news ever. Eric Hansen was born in New York and has lived most of his life in the Sunshine State of Florida. His early guitar influences were popular rock, progressive rock, and some guitar instrumentalists such as Al DiMiola, Carlos Montoya, Pat Metheny, and the great John Williams. His early jazz studies also exposed him to the core classical guitar repertoire with J.S. Bach quickly becoming one of his earliest passions on the classical guitar. In 2001, Eric started his solo performance and recording career releasing Without Words and Romanancero. These albums spent many weeks on Billboard's Top 25 New Age Music Chart. Eric went on to release two more albums under the Neurodisc label with Colores de Lama and Across the Universe, A Beatles Journey, which is one of my personal Desert Island discs. Eric has now released eight albums, most recently in the spring of 2021, Transcendence. Transcendence is an eclectic mix of a variety of styles that exceeds your expectations for one of the finest listening experiences of the year. I spoke with Eric just as Transcendence was being released. We talked about his influences, technique, and recording this great album. Here is the Just Picks podcast first installment of my conversation with Nylon String Wizard, Florida's Eric Hansen. Welcome to the show, Eric. 
Thank you so much, Don. I'm glad to be here. So how, I have to ask you, how is your weather? <laughs> Boy, can... You don't want to know, man. It's too good to, to, to tell you. I'm sure you'd be you know, aggravated to hear because <laughs> it's like wearing shorts out here. It's perfect. Well, I'm sure you know Steely Dan, right? Of course. Yeah. And you know, I knew Roger Nichols, and uh, he's since passed on, but I'm still good friends with his wife, Connie. She sang backup for John Denver, which is actually kind of a sideway as I got to know her. And I just talked to her an hour ago. She's in Austin, hasn't had power for three days, and she's freezing. I mean, it's it's bad. I bet. I bet. it's. Uh, we have friends in Texas as well, and they, they are definitely in trouble. Well, you know, it's interesting. I've got so many players that I'm just, I mean, I want to say, when people say this, uh, like, I think generally, I mean it specifically. I'm blessed to talk to folks like you. And you're the first nylon player that I get to talk to. So I'm really excited about this. You know, I have... I, I, I said to my wife, my wife and I had dinner just a few moments ago, and I said, I'm not going to tell Eric I have 11 pages of questions. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully I got 11 answers. I was, I, was, I was kind of reminiscing how you and I met. I'm sure you remember how you and I met. You know, it was the cakewalk forums, right? Yeah, it was the sonar forum. And you know, what's, what's really interesting is that that's probably 15 or more years ago. You know? mm -hmm. And what I remember is you, know, you, were, you were really helpful and insightful. And, you know, and, and you know, like, then one day... I put two and two together, and I realized that you were the player and the engineer on Across the Universe. And I like sat back and I went, like, because I loved that album, and I, oh, I didn't, cool. put, yeah, I didn't put it together, you know. And then we eventually met when you and Tony came up with Turnstiles. Yeah. You did a show here in Pittsburgh. That's when I met you, right? And uh, anyway, so all that stuff, but you know, so if if since this is kind of like a timepiece, we're in the middle of the, the pandemic. So tell me what it's been like for you as a musician from about March of 2020 to about now. I mean, what's, been, what's it been like? Well, to use the overused term, it's like a roller coaster. You know, at first you're scared to death because there's so much uncertainty. You're, you know, I went unemployed overnight. You know, I wasn't doing gigs, six, seven, eight gigs a week. And then within a two day span, everybody shut it down, which was expected. I knew it was coming, but, um, you know, and then, then to grapple with that and say, well, what do I do? How long can I sustain my bills and everything, right, with no income at all? Where am I going to get a job? Because what jobs are left at the, at the moment and everybody's clamoring to get the same job. <clears throat> and uh, and then, then the whole horror of trying to uh, apply for unemployment when you're a 1099 worker. And I don't know how it was in other states, but in Florida, it was like a disaster. There was just no way to prove you were making money. You would put in as much information you can to come back and just say, we have no record of this and we're not giving you anything. And I was like, what, you know, and I kept trying and you'd be lucky just to get into the system. You'd have to wait an hour, you get in, you probably get booted out. But eventually somehow I got approved because I, I was doing lessons through some lessons with Guitar Center. So I had like one legit job <laughs> and somehow that was enough to kind of get me pushed into the system. And I was, I was getting like the minimum from the state, but it, it also got me connected with the uh, federal 600 a week. So once that came in, it was many, it was like two months into the whole process, but once it came in, they backlogged it back to the beginning and I had a, you know, I could breathe a sense of relief. Oh, that's there. fantastic. Well, I'm glad to hear that. You know, you're right. Every state's been really different. And, and I'm, I'm glad we have a recorded that someone referred to a Guitar Center gig as a legitimate gig. I mean, that's just outstanding. Yeah, yeah. If it wasn't for that, I don't know if I ever would have got through, you know. You know I've, heard, I've heard so many stories like that, that there were you know, one little foothold and, and everything comes together, you know, which is cool. But so that was early on. Um, did you did you maintain your chops? Did you practice a lot? Did you open up students? I mean, and, and then you got this album, which we're going to talk a lot about. Yeah. Um, well, the chops, yeah, my chops kind of fell off a bit in the beginning because I really stopped playing. 
that wasn't that wasn't thing that happened that I needed, but it was just under the wrong mental state. But I needed a break. I had been doing this for years and years and years and without really any vac- long vacations or a break from music. And the last three years have been unbelievably busy with gigs. And I just take everything I can get because I just want to, you know, keep make as much money as I can before I can't do it. And my hands were really shot. I had tendonitis on and off. And wow. that break was really a nice mental change. And once I kind of got some certainty with my income and knew I could sustain this to the end of the year, then I was able to relax and actually enjoy some of this time off from playing. Uh, but it did shift focus to more of the, the streaming performance. I figured this is going to be the way of the future. I got to figure out how to do it. So, you know, I, I spent like a month just kind of researching how I'm going to get the audio to be top notch by doing external mixing and bringing all my effects and then bringing it in as a two-channel mix. And it took a while to tweak it, and my first show sounded great, but it looked horrible. I was just using a webcam, and the lighting was terrible. And uh, and I just eventually kind of figured out how to do lighting, how to do proper camera, upgrade the camera, all that stuff. And now it's like, you know, pretty good production with, you know, graphics and stuff if I need it. And so I spent a couple of months really learning the online streaming thing and the OBS stuff and all the stuff that goes with that. Yeah, in fact, I, I seem to recall several of your shows were around dinner time for us. And so my family and I had the chance to kind of sit and watch the your your live stream performance while we were um, uh, you know while we were eating, and I remember during, several times chatting with your wife because <laughs> she was yeah, like yeah, in the chat yeah, around this controlling the chat. <laughs> it was just outstanding. Yeah, th- those yeah. live streams were just killer. Well, anyways, so we're 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 going to talk a lot about transcendence, and because that's that's a big part, I guess, of of, of what how you spent your time. But w- one thing I'm kind of interested in is if you would tell our listeners you know, how you started out as a musician. I mean. Um, uh, was was guitar your first instrument? I mean, how young were you and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, got exposed to it around probably seven or eight. My dad played guitar, <clears throat> and uh, so he, he you know he would play a lot. I'd hang out, and watch him, and I'd mess around with it. And they encouraged me to learn, and I ended up taking lessons at the local store, but didn't didn't last too long with it. You know, I got tired of it and wanted to quit. And my mom said, "Well, if you want to quit, you call the store and you tell them you're quitting." <laughs> so <laughs> I did, and then. Um, and then several years later, we moved to another neighborhood and there was a, the kids in that area had a band and I was hanging around and I wanted to be part of it, but I didn't really have anything. I couldn't play guitar worth a damn, but they were playing uh, some rush tunes. They were playing limelight and I happened to have a crappy keyboard. So I was able to hold <laughs> some of those notes that Getty plays with his feet right on the keyboard for these guys while they were playing and kind of got my foot in that and then started playing guitar and, and got into it heavily at that point like around 13, 14. And then I was obsessed with it. And, uh, and then the rest was history at that point. It's been full time. Well, as a youngster, uh, the, the first music I remember hearing, interestingly enough, was Eddie Arnold. If you know the, the great classic uh, country guy from uh, Music Row, you know, a great three-minute you know, pop song out of Nashville. What was some of the first music you remember hearing? Probably Beatles. Uh, my parents had a ton of Beatles records, and they had a couple of oddball records. You know, it was like, in their collection, but they had an eclectic, you know, collection of music. They had a Carlos Montoya record, which was like a live in Carnegie Hall or New York City or something. Um, and then they had this other thing was like a guitar ensemble playing Brazilian jazz, which I always thought was killer. Um, and then a ton of Beatles records. And that, that chunk of stuff was like the beginnings of what I started listening to. Uh, but the Carlos Montoya thing stuck with me. I, I It was so energetic and so cool sounding to me. But I didn't have exposure to that style of music till way later in college. But right. it, it resonated with me all that time until I got a chance to to kind of look into it. 
Yeah, you know, probably a lot of people, young people today, don't even know who Carlos Montoya is. Yeah, probably not. So, for some of our younger listeners, describe Carlos's playing and kind of why it stood out for you. It was the energy, the strumming, you know, all those fast rescuados and uh, just the, the the fast scales, and it just it just had this amazing sound to me that it's hard to describe because I I can't really go back and remember exactly how I felt then, but it just was just the energy of it. It just sounded like something that I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to somehow know what it felt like to play that and uh, and just didn't get it. I never really got a chance to do it because I never really formally learned flamenco. I dabbled in it. That's about it. But you grew up in the United States your whole life. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. So the thing about Montoya is there's a there's there is a Spanish quality to that, you might say. Right. So, oh, yeah, it's traditional yeah. flamenco. Yeah. 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 So how does how does someone like you, you know, a, a, a guy from North America. How do you get that in your blood? That 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 very. You don't, and that's why I can't do it now. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, I mean, if I had applied myself, I could have learned it and and yeah, got into it. But I was into so many different styles of music, so you know, you kind of torn. Most of my energies went into classical guitar, right, for, for a good ten years. Yeah, in fact, I'm 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 going to come around to that. I'm really interested in that. But who were your earliest influences as a guitarist? So there's Montoya. Who else is a guitarist? You know, you remember as a youngster. My first hero probably is going to be uh, probably Alex Lifeson of Rush and, you know, of course, Eddie Van Halen. Because uh, once I got into that and got a little older, then it was like the, all the 80s rock, late 70s, 80s rock stuff was, uh, you know, all the guitar heroes with that. So you had Alex Lifeson, Eddie Van Halen, and also uh, Randy Rhodes, of course. So these are my big 80s heroes for, you know, rock and roll. Uh, but I, as I got through that whole process and got kind of burned out on that stuff, you know, well, I, I got to mention also the uh, the neoclassical stuff that came a little bit after that, which was like Ingve Malmsteen. That blew me away. And that drew me out of the rock thing and into the classical thing because of his Bach influence and Paganini influence. And, uh, you know, it got me interested. I was like, All right, I want to learn more about that music. So I get into that and then, you know, go to college. And then I go to I'm studying jazz guitar in college, but the guy's always waiting for me playing classical guitar. And I'm like, I really love the sound of that. And, you know, all that stuff kind of pushes me in that one direction. But, um, yeah, it's all those 80s rock guys, really. And then after that, it becomes classical guitar heroes. Dave Russell, Manuel Barreco, um, God, I can't think of it. Pepe, uh, Romero. There's well, so I, many. I, I, don't, I feel like I'm missing out on a bunch of, I've, you know, that I've heard. Right, right, right. Yeah. Mike, well, I, one of the things that comes to mind is who you first heard as a nylon player, other than Montoya. Uh, it would probably be like uh, John Williams, probably as a classical player, because he was so, you know, uh, omnipresent in the classical world or classical guitar world. If you went to buy a classical guitar album, it was all his stuff at the store, you know. And then you see other players, but he was everywhere. So, and you know, the impeccable technique. So he was probably like the the big first exposure to nylon string. Right, right. You know, I, I don't know if you know this. I'm a little bit older than you, but there was a point in time on public television. Where Segovia gave lessons on a Saturday morning on TV, it, it's insane. I've never looked it up on YouTube. I'm, I, I forget about it all the time. But I'm sure there must be a film that somewhere. Can you imagine? I, I was a little kid, and that's how I. I think that might be how I first heard the nylon guitar. Yeah, yeah. Segovia is a you know a giant because of the repertoire that he he helped create. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think I've seen the videos you're talking about at least one because there is one where he's sitting with a young John Williams. And John is asking questions about stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, I believe I know. I, I know that one. I think that's a master class. These were made for public television. These were hilarious. They were like, you know, like masterpiece guitar with uh, with with Andre Segovia. 
Well, well, you know, one of the questions I'm, I ask everybody I'm interested in is if um, there was some music that, I don't want to say you avoided, but you had no interest in. It either seemed unreachable to you or you didn't care. Like for me, it was blues. I could have cared less if I ever played blues in my life, right? But um, did any type of like arch top jazz or something show up for you that you just knew you didn't have an interest in? I could say country, maybe, you know, just like pop country. I mean, there's, I like bluegrass because of the technical stuff that happens in that. It's amazing picking. But country music never interests me and it kind of still doesn't. But um, blues, it's, it's not something that I avoided. I just never really got into it. And I'm not a good blues player at all, you know, and I really admire a good blues player. But once I heard Stevie Ray Vaughan, it was hard to hear anybody else after that because Stevie just was the best ever I've ever heard. And I love his tone. And But uh, yeah, not a very good blues player. I, I admit to that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's kind of like those things we we're talking about. The, the Spanish thing, you have to have it in your veins to, for it to really be there. And obviously Stevie did. Yeah. So let me ask you, you mentioned you were, you were taking, there was a point in time when you're taking lessons and you hear this guy playing classical guitar, right? Yeah. Um, so when was it, and, and you know, it's just one of those things where there's not a lot of us around, <laughs> I, I noticed, you know, people that are really in the, in the, in the classical. Right. Um, and so, and I shouldn't say it that way, that's not fair, but in, 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 the, in the guitar universe, right, there's, there's folks like you, right? and, and there's not as many, I would say, right? And so... Why, why do you think you were attracted to that? I mean, what was it? I think, you know, it's, it's that thing when you hear something, I want to know what it feels like to have it come through you, you know, because I'm moved by it when I hear it. So what does it feel like to actually play it and have that run through my fingers? Um, you know, when I hear a, a Bach piece or something, it's like I want to immediately play it. And a lot of things I hear are beyond my ability. So it's frustrating. But when you hear that and you hear the emotion and what it does to you, I want to know what it feels like to, to actually perform it or have it leave me and hopefully affect somebody else the same way. Um, so you walk into a lesson to do jazz studies and he's playing classical guitar and he's playing, you know, a Bach prelude or something like that. And the sound is beautiful. And, and I'm just like, wow, I really want to learn how to play that. And uh, so I, I asked, can we, can we do both? And we did. And eventually I just kind of shifted to classical guitar totally. The wow. jazz guitar was like a minor, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that. But the, the one of the things that comes to mind to me is oftentimes when you go into the classical guitar you just described now, were you also a classic music, classical music fan? Like, were you into like yeah. uh, Modest Mazorsky and Scraven, you know, and Beethoven? Or did you kind of enter classical music from the guitar? Well, it's definitely through through guitar and like I said the first exposure what kind of starts to broaden your mind is you hearing Ray Malmsteen you know imitating Bach or Paganini and like wow where's that coming from um and then I start to you know listen to and seek out classical guitarists and I, I don't know who they are at the time I'm, I'm young and I don't know but I hear it and I'm like this is beautiful stuff um and then you see a movie or something that's you know about classical music and it inspires you even more to want to learn it and uh and then, and then you just get exposed to it and you start finding all this beautiful music and you're like, wow. And then you just start to expand and like, really, the, the rock thing, like once we got into that, that 90s period where the 80s rock stuff that I had perfected was dying out to grunge, I, I was just like, I was done with it. I'm like, uh, I turned my back to it and didn't go back for a long, long time. Um, I didn't even touch electric guitar at that point. Um, so I forgot what my point was on that one, but. Just when you expanded to hear the uh, 
Paganini stuff and the Bach stuff that, that Ingve was doing that kind of opened up your world to the pal- whole palette of classical music. Yeah, yeah, I want to find out what's what's behind that. You know, it's not just it's not him that created. It. He's influenced by something. He's influenced heavily by Blackmore, Richie Blackmore, and also you know all this classical stuff. And I want to know what's what's driving that because uh, maybe there's something there that I can take. Right, right, right. And, and then you learn there's like all these periods, you know, the Romantic yeah. period, Baroque, and Medieval. And did you did you get it all into lute music, uh, Renaissance stuff? Yeah, a little bit. But the teacher I had, so when I got to my my third year of college, um, my my classical guitar teacher was heavily into Renaissance music and uh, and John Dowland and and all that stuff. So he exposed us to that stuff, and we took like a like a guitar pedagogy course, and um, you know, he started showing us different periods of you know music that came that eventually made it to guitar, but it was also, you know, lute and other, other instruments back in the day. But yeah, I, I do like it. Um, but my big love starts with Baroque period and I can't get enough of it. I can't get enough of Bach. I recently just started listening to a lot of CPE Bach, which, which I never really paid attention to. And I just, you know, it's one of those weird things. YouTube one day says, check this out, check out this cello concerto in a minor. I put it on and I'm like, my God, that's great. Uh, but Bach and then Mozart, I was into into a while, but I, I kind of shifted more to Beethoven. So Bach and Beethoven are my two heroes for classical music. I just yeah, love that. the energy. I listen to Bach. It's just it just seems like pure perfection to me, you know, nice. mathematically, harmonically. It's just perfect. It's just perfect. Beethoven, of course, the the energy and drama that he has is just I just his piano concertos or not his piano sonatas are my favorites. Yeah, the, the passion in there. You know, I've, I've had the privilege to talk to so many people about Bach. If I'm sure you know who Chris Thiele is, the great mandolin player. Yeah. Yeah, so Chris and I had, had in fact, I just took a course with him. Uh, uh, ended about two weeks ago. We've talked about Bach. Mike Marshall. I've sat with Barwaco and David Russell. We've talked at length about Bach and so on. But, you know, one, yeah, and, and so one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm remembering is, there's an album that John Williams released, and I, I don't think he was, was he 17 years old or whatever, but it's the Bach Lute uh, Suites. Do you remember that album? It's from the 70s, whatever, if you heard that. It was a I water, yeah, it, it just, it changed the world. You know, it totally changed the world. So one of the questions I have for you is, do you remember your first nylon guitar? What was it? Um, that's a good question. I think it was like a Fender classical, a cheap Fender classical. Yeah, it goes way back. And then at some point, I think I upgraded to like a student level Ramirez. But it was a it was a Fender classical nylon string. That's amazing. I mean, was it playable? I mean, do you remember anything about it? Playable enough that I could you know learn some basic classical on it and uh, get the job done. But my that first student level Ramirez was pretty nice. It had a very distinct uh, upgrade in tone. <laughs> Playability wasn't that great, but. Yeah, it sounded a hell of a lot better. Oh, yeah. In fact, I remember my first Ramirez, and I used to refer to the fretboard as an international runway. It was just massive, yeah, and yeah. I struggled with that. But, you know, I, I probably became a better player, and I was young enough not to get injured on it, but it was big. I, I remember it was, it was not a nice instrument to play. You yeah, know, yeah. It, it was, and there, there weren't a lot of dealers here in Pittsburgh at the time. In fact, a real funny story. I love that I can talk to you about these funny stories. So when David Russell first came to Pittsburgh, it was before I knew him. We're friends now. This is before I knew him. He came to Pittsburgh to play a concerto with an orchestra down in West Virginia, right? He flies into Pittsburgh, and someone stole his Fisher. His Fisher. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. He shows up to do, like, the Iran with or something, and someone steals his guitar. So he, this is funny, Eric. So he, comes, he gets to a hotel in Pittsburgh, right? And he starts calling stories. Have you ever, he, he sounds just like Sean Connery. because he's, yeah, he's, he's got a right? Scottish accent. So he's, he's calling these stores, and he's saying, so, do you have a classic guitar? <laughs> <laughs> and he's talking to us in Pittsburgh, and they go, 
Then they go, yeah, we have 59 strat, a 61 telly. Then he goes, no, one with plastic strings. <laughs> yeah, it could be a nightmare for him trying to find it. They've been hanging up on him left and right. I mean, it, that, and that was a long time ago, you know, but since then, you know, obviously you have friends in every city, but oh my God, it's yeah, such yeah. a great story. So you studied at, at Florida Atlantic, right? Mm -hmm. University, right? Yeah. And, I, and I was over at FSU with Bruce Holzman, if you know Bruce Holzman. Yeah. Right? yeah. And, I, yeah and I eventually studied with one of his graduate students, but you were a groundbreaker. I was reading your bio, and it says that you were the first guy to receive a um, first guitarist to receive masters in performance. I mean, take me back to what that means and, and why, you know, why that was significant. Um, it wasn't a master's, it was just a bachelor's. Okay, but, that's, but, you were the but you were the first to get that degree, though, in performance, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, something, something to that effect. I don't really remember the details now. But, uh, yeah, it, it was like the uh, guitar performance program. It was just, just kind of a new program for the guitar, I guess. That's all. It wasn't, it's not that big a deal, really. But, um, uh, yeah, it was like most guys were going there for education and stuff. And I, and I started I started with music ed education as well. But I was finding, you know, as I got into the courses, it just wasn't really what I wanted to go to college for. I wanted to go to college to learn how to be a better, better player. And I just couldn't see myself as an as an educator in, in you know, public school. And uh, so eventually that program came along like, perfect. Now I can, you know, shift focus to that and, and just concentrate on my recitals and learning stuff. Or learning pieces, so that's kind of how that came about. It was just basically to get pe people that weren't interested in doing music education that can focus on just the performance aspect. Of it. And I guess it just that program didn't exist for guitar until around that time. It probably was for piano though, because there was you know always a ton of piano players yeah, and probably violin too. There's always a lot of violin players. It would appear. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about that because you know I work in a university, right? I've been in a university now for 21 years. What would you say were the best aspects of having that academic experience? You know, d do you think it really shaped you? You know, looking back yeah. from where you are now, you know, how did you get there? I mean, how did you get from where you where you were then to now? And was there what is a relationship? Well, the, I think the best part is that I applied pretty much everything I learned coming out of there. And I wish I had gone on to get a master's, uh, but I didn't. But everything I learned in those first four years, I, I've definitely used. You know, it's somewhere along the line of where the whether it's transcribing music for people or or writing my own stuff out, or you know, just just writing music in general, all that stuff was very useful to me. But also meeting a lot of people from different countries, different backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, and and learning about their music, and that's how I started to make the connection with the Spanish guitar. Because now I'm meeting, I meet a guy from Spain, I meet a guy from Peru. Uh, and they, they're more in touch with that stuff and they're showing me things now like, well, this is how, you know, you would strum a Roomba properly. And, you know, these are these odd techniques that are used in, in flamenco that, that we don't learn in classical, you know, certain strumming techniques and stuff. So yeah, it was very cool. And then we would jam out in the, in the practice rooms and it's like, Hey, there's this whole thing that we're doing here that involves a lot of improvisation on nylon string guitar, which is, which is very cool because. I haven't done this since the rock days where I was improvising the guitar. It's been learning classical pieces and you're only improvising how you interpret it, right? So now there's a down there's a room here to improvise over pieces. You can write something or you can play something and then everybody takes a solo and it just all of a sudden there's this excitement there that I that got me kind of really motivated to to get into this. And that's how I kind of arrived where I am now. But uh yeah, you know, exposures to different cultures, different different styles of playing, broader range of music. You go to the the noon recitals, you hear everybody playing, and sometimes you hear a piece of music you would never have heard. And you're like, wow, this is great. I love this piano piece or I love this guitar piece. And yeah, just being around 
better musicians and serious musicians makes a big difference because it's the big difference from that and like the rock scene. <laughs> well, I, I, lo- I love the way you described that though, meeting people from other countries and the improv thing because the next question I had planned to ask you was, there was, there was a point in time where you said, I'm not going to go down the path of John Williams and Juan Manuel Barueco and David Russell and Elliot Fisk and all those guys. You, so you chose not to be a, 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 class, a, a classical performer. Now, was that ever part of your plan or not? It was sort of until I went to my first competition and I saw how far behind I was. <laughs> and then I was like, yeah, maybe I should focus elsewhere because there was guys there that were way ahead of me as far as guitar, classical guitar chops were. Um, and I figured, well, you know, I've gotten a lot out of this and I still love it. But there are other things that are starting to kind of get into my head now with the with the Spanish guitar stuff. And, and I think I'm going to kind of start focusing on that. Um so yeah, yeah, that was that's a very, very, very tough world to get into and be successful at. No, uh, was was that a GFA? It was, yeah, it was in um, New Milford, Connecticut, or something. And, okay, uh, I I used to go to them all the time. So I was. Do you remember what year that was? Because it's been a while since I've been at one. Um, probably late nineties. Boy, that's real close to when I used to go. Isn't that funny? Yeah, yeah I mean, I went. In fact, I went all the way up to uh, Quebec City in order to meet uh, what's his name, the great Cuban. Um, Who's our great uh, Cuban composer? My wife uh, and I were... uh, Leo Brower. Yeah, yeah, I got to meet Leo Brower up in yeah. Quebec City, but all the ones in the United States he couldn't come to, right? But um, isn't that amazing? And so the GFA was great. So you go to GFA, and of course there, there's a lot of good players, right? But yeah. but the GFA is also a good place to 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 network, to get teaching jobs and and, and things like that. But so the classical world didn't seem to be the, the direction you wanted to go. I mean, I just got intimidated and. I had another outlet that I could focus my energies to, you know, if I didn't have that outlet, I might've just overcome that and continued on and, and just learn from that experience. Say, okay, well, these are, these are my weaknesses and now I need to, to go back and practice this, this, and this to get up to the level of these guys. And that may have been a possibility, but I had other things that I was interested in and it just kind of shifted my focus towards it, you know? Right, right. Well, you know, I, I love that you mentioned the, the improvisational stuff that showed back up when you guys were jamming. That, that, that's really interesting. One of the things I thought would be interesting for our, um, our, our still string electric players and so on is th- to give you an opportunity to describe what are some of the things that some of those players might not think about. Uh, so a, a standard plectrum player who's playing a Les Paul every night in an Eagles cover band or whatever, they're not thinking about nails, they're not thinking about organic tone, they're not thinking about 12 fret. I mean, what goes, how would you describe the difference between how you approach the nylon instrument as a guitarist as opposed to someone with a plectrum and you know, plugging a, a cable into a you know, PAF uh, and, and, a, and a Marshall? Yeah, definitely tone. Uh, your nails can be a big problem <laughs> with that from one day to the next, right? At least the pick is the same thing from day in, day out, unless it wears out and you just grab another one and keep going. But the nails are constantly need attention. They constantly need to be maintained. Uh, you got to be careful not to do things that are going to break your nails off, which can destroy a month worth of gigs, right? You're stuck with fake nails, and then that's even harder to rip, recover from. Um, but also, you know, as a, as a when you're using finger style, you are thinking a little bit more polyphonic, whereas I think a plectrum player may be... I mean, they, they're playing chords, of course, so that's polyphonic, but they may not be thinking about two lines at the same time, whereas, you know, we're going to be thinking more of, like, counterpoint or something like that, uh, bass lines, melodies, and how we're going to work the inner voices as well, especially if you're working on an arrangement. So maybe that's the best I can answer that, you know, as far, but I, I, I kind of come from both sides, and I, I switch between you know, kind of in one song, I could be doing half and half, pick and yeah. fingers. Yeah, in fact, that, that's actually the next thing I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you about, but... 
you know, w one of the big things I know is that some, some of um, the electric players I know, they don't even know that our instruments are typically 12 fret to the body. There's a 14 fret, you know, the, the typical kind of CF Martin design for 14 fret. And like to them, they just look at that and have no idea what they're doing. Now, I, I play a couple of the Millenniums, you know, that have the drop top and stuff like that. So it's, you know, it's kind of like a, 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 one of those things where you don't even notice the top and so on. But I, I want to talk about what I, what I call, and you can tell me what you call it, your hybrid approach. Because there are times that you're using your nails and sometimes you're using a, a pick. So I want to ask you a question that's really digging into the, 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 the geeky part of this, right? So think about a song in which you do that, you know, where you're going from your, you're going from your fingers to, to plectrum. What's happening in the music and what gives you the decision point where you're going, I'm going to the plectrum now, like when you're writing it or preparing it as a, as a, as a performance piece? Well, my first choice would always probably be finger style because I have more tone choices that I can do. Than, I mean, I can do a lot of things with the timbre with the pick as well, but finger style just gives me the freedom of arpeggiating and doing scales and everything I want to do. But I'm limited with the speed that I have when it comes to scales or which phrases I can execute with my fingers. I'm just behind the curve, I guess, in that department. So, But because I had all that rock experience, I had some skills with the pick and started to bring it back into my playing, you know, when I started performing out doing Spanish guitar stuff. And, uh, and it slowly worked its way into where it became just part of the whole thing is like a natural process. So if I want to do a fast scale or certain types of phrases that I just can't execute with my fingers well, I grab the pick. And uh, and then just switch back when when necessary. So it just became like kind of an easy thing to do. Just put it on my knee, grab it when I need it, put it back, you know. And uh, becoming proficient at both was nice because I felt like I had the best of both worlds. Now I wasn't just stuck because it, it's like I can only go so fast with fingers when it comes to a scale. I don't know why I just can't seem to get past a certain threshold in speed. I maybe it's just the way I shape my nails or whatever, but. With a pick, I feel like I have a lot less limitation as far as speed goes. Well, if anyone listening to the show hasn't heard you play yet, I don't think you can, anyone can play some of the stuff you play with their finger. I mean, it's just brilliant. And, you know, I remember when I first heard Strunz and Farah, and, and I didn't realize they were using plectrums in some of those runs. You know, I, I, I couldn't imagine that's possible. But I, I, the thing that I remember most from listening to your recordings, watching your live streams and, and so on, because I've never seen you uh, live play nylon. I've only seen the electric format. We'll, we'll talk about that downstream a bit. But what, what I, I can tell you, what, if I close my eyes, I can't tell, other than if you just looked at the, the speed that we're talking about or the phrase, right? I can't tell a tonal difference. Your technique, moving from the pick back to your hands again, is, is impressive because what, I, what I've heard First of all, a lot of like I, I listen to Nick Webb from Acoustic Alchemy playing a pick on nylon. He he doesn't play well at all with a pick on nylon. God rest his soul. I love him dearly, right? Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think we just lost his wife last year. If he didn't, know. Oh, I think so. Awesome. Yeah. But anyways, the point is, is that you have this thing that you do, and and I really want to get picky about it. No pun intended here. But you have an a, 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 a an approach to using a plectrum that is as much as a you know finger and nail guy as anybody I've ever heard. So how do you make that happen? I think it's going to come down to probably the angle of the pick because on electric, you're going to be using a bit of an angle on the strings for speed. And it's not, it doesn't seem to affect the tone as much. And in fact, it may sound kind of cool on electric, especially if you have a lot of gain. Um, but on, on classical guitar, I noticed, or a nylon string guitar, I noticed that if the pick is at an angle, it's just, just for me, because I've seen other guys play at an angle and it sounds fine. But to me, I, I had a problem with this, the sound of the pick rubbing the string, the, the edge of the pick or the side of the pick, and you get this kind of scratchy sound, especially on the wound strings. So I started to flatten the pick out a bit, and it's it's 
not completely parallel with the string, but it's close. And that gets me a much cleaner attack onto the string that matches the sound of my, my nails. Right. So well, go ahead. No, I just said one, one of the things too is that when, so when you put, in fact, I, by the way, I saw, um, not Leona Boyd. Oh, I just forgot her name. Who, who's the woman that, that is on the guitar program up in uh, Juilliard? I don't know. Oh yeah. You know, um, black hair. Oh, I, anyways, I saw her do uh, the the um, Concerto di Ronnie and she used a pick for all the Roschiatos with the Pittsburgh Symphony. Wow, that's that's pushing some boundaries. Yeah, it was really pushing some boundaries. Um, and her name will come to me, but not Leona Boyd, but the uh, oh god, a real pick or just kind of holding her hand in the style of a pick. No, she was playing with a pick. <laughs> oh, I've seen some people kind of use their thumbnail like like that, you know. Yeah, yeah. But but what I wanted to, what I wanted to comment on again this might be too technical and again you might not even think about it because it's so natural to you but when when you go back you know from the pick and you go back to your hands one of the things I've noticed that players that do that is for a moment for about two measures either their tone their speed or something suffers because there's a moment of readjustment that doesn't seem to happen for you I mean you seem no, to get right back no, in pick selection has to do with that too so I make sure I find picks that get the tone that gets close to that because the, the thinner pick is definitely going to sound smaller. Right, less right. body to the sound. So you got to find the right thickness of the pick, but it has to have enough flexibility for the speed. Um, but yeah, pick selection also is part of that process. Well, not not to go down the endorsement path. I mean, what do you play? What, what how thick of a pick and what do you play? Well, it, it can vary a little bit. Um, I tend to use some picks from a company called Dava, uh, D A V A, and they have like a, a rubber grip on them, and they have a kind of a pointy end to them, but they're flexible, so they're they're nice for speed because they get past the string quickly, but the rubber grip comes in handy because this is funny, but because I'm using my fingers a lot and it can be hot out here or, or it can be dry sometimes too, but I have to put sometimes a little bit of lubrication on the tips of my fingers, whether it's some chapstick or, you know, a Vaseline or something. Um, but what happens is then you go grab a pick and the pick is sliding all over the place in your fingers. <laughs> so I, the, the Dava picks have this rubber kind of grip on them and it prevents that problem, solves that problem. So, but I've also used some Dunlop uh, picks that are maybe 0.63 or 0.72 in thickness, not as thick as you would think, but with the right angle. Like I'm saying, if you're coming coming in flat, you're going to get a lot of body in the sound versus an edge type type picking. So, um, but yeah, I, I probably go through about two or three different picks pick styles um, depending on the tone I'm looking for. Sometimes I like a bright attack. For a particular solo or piece, so I will use a little bit thinner pick for that. Well, I, I was going to ask you, uh, do you bevel them at all? Uh, some people actually take a Dremel and bevel their picks. Have you have you done that? No, no, use them as is. Um, I, of course, I like a pick that's been used at least for a week because then it kind of smooths out all the edges. Because some right. things kind of suck, you know, when you first get them. So now I, I, we all buff our nails. Do you buff your picks? Oh, I have some picks like when you get them, they have edges on them. Like this pick. Right. So, yeah, I'll do that. And if I can't fix it in, in the trash, it goes. Right. Yeah. yeah. Same, same things. <laughs> One of the things that a lot of players and I talk about as you go up in gauge, right? Because, you, you know, there's some arch top jazz players that are playing 3.0s and all that kind of yeah, stuff, right? Really well, the, the, wrist, the wrist in their hand becomes a compressor you know, because essentially their technique is adjusting and, and they're, not, they're not hitting that string with that, the full impact of that. that you know, whereas at the speed that you're playing some of your, um, you know, arpeggios and, and your runs, I mean, you, you probably have little time to really focus on a lot of stuff. So the picks really got to be able to be really an extension of your hand. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to keep the movement to a minimum where you're not using a lot of arm and you're focusing your energy from your wrist, then a thinner pick is good. You don't want to go too thin because then the sound gets really 
week. But uh, yeah, a 3.0, that would be crazy thick though. I, I did use a, another, I think it was, uh, I don't know if I have one here. What was this? Uh, that's all worn out. But I had this thick black pick that I used to use. I think it was a Dunlop. Um, and it's probably three millimeters thick, but it had a very pointy end, but it was very rounded. And for a long time, I used these on nylon string guitar and they got a great tone, but I was putting too much arm into it and it would be tiring at a long gig. So I started switching to the thinner picks, focusing more on the wrist movement and it's just more efficient and easy to maintain over a three, four hour gig. So right. sorry, you know. now, have you played any of these boutique picks? No, but you mentioned that the pick you had was handmade. So are they consistent? Because that would be the one yeah, thing I don't determine. Yeah. yeah. So, but I mean, I do polish them. They're about fifteen dollars a pick. I mean, there's the blue chips. Some of you've seen those. Yeah, I've seen right? those. Yeah. And the V picks. But but anyways. So and, and and I also have a pick made of milk, by the way. Wow, never heard of it. Yeah, it's crazy. But anyway, so that's actually what got me interested in the show because I, I, a bunch of friends of ours are, are nuts about picks. But I think it's really ironic you and I sitting here talking about picks given what we, what we really do in our day job, which is, so let, let's talk about you and your nails. Um, like I, I think I told you I'm going skiing tomorrow with a family. We're going to go up to the mountains, right? So I, I just, I literally just shaped my nails and got them all ready so I don't have to do anything for the next three days. What, how, what do you do to maintain your nails? Do you like them long? Do you like them short? How do you, how do you treat them? How do you keep them strong, et cetera? Um, I like them. I don't know if it would be considered long or short there. I just do the typical thing where you, you put your index finger against the top of the guitar at a 90 degree angle. And I want to see the edge of the, the, the edge of the nail kind of be the same point as the fingertip itself. So it's pretty much a, a best way to, that way I can like, if I'm going to shape them, I know that's a fairly consistent area to shape them down to. That's going to feel pretty much the same day in, day out. Um, but there are times where, you know, you don't file them for a couple of days and, and they get a little longer and they still work great for whatever reason. So, but as soon as they start to feel like they're catching or I, most of my problems start and descending scales. So I start getting hung up on strings. I know my, something's wrong with the nail shape or the length and I got to get back into it. But pretty much that, that whole 90 degree angle thing, hold it against the top tip of the nail and the tip of the finger kind of touch the top at the same time. I think they got, I got out of it like, um, that pumping nylon book. Remember that book? Yeah, Scott Tennant's book, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it, it, he, it was like his suggestion, and I think, yeah, it kind of works. It's cool. It's a nice way of measuring it and keeping it consistent. Right. Did you know Aaron Shear? Not personally, no. Okay, so he, he was a good friend of mine. God bless him. Lost him not too long ago. But uh, I was a student of Aaron's, and he and I were very close friends. And uh, you know, he was the guy that kind of taught me the shape. I have to tell you, I've, I've gotten away from it. I've gotten a little lazy. You know, I think I'm not... But I'm, I'm not playing uh, concerts and certainly not playing at the level that you're at. But at the same time, that was the start of, of my shape. But I think it's interesting what you said. Now, what do you do? Um, do, do you treat them or coat them with anything to keep them strong? Um, if they're having a problem or if there was some damage to them, then I'll put a conditioner on them or like a one of those hardener type things. That the, But for the most part, no. I don't really put anything on there. It, sometimes those things affect the tone. Sometimes it affects it for better. But for the most part, I like them just the way they are. Uh, and I'm just careful. The, the only thing I really have ever had problems with is my thumb thumbnail because I, I kind of have a longer thumbnail and I you know break it off from time to time doing something. So then you're stuck using a stupid uh, fake tip that you got to glue on. And then that eventually wears the top of the nail away as it wears off and pops off and you got to fix that at a gig, you know. Uh, so after after it's finally long enough, then I have the fake tip on, it's really weakened and I have to constantly coat it with stuff. To right. keep it protected, you know. But the rest of my nails are uh, pretty much the way they are. Yeah, and one of the questions I had is, if uh, you break a nail, 
just before performance, which happened to me. I was playing a Vivaldi concerto with an orchestra, and I broke, I think it was my M-nail, P-I. Oh. I remember which one. I mean, it was bad. Um, and so my, my sense is, is that I, I think I'd now rather just play with flesh than try to put a prosthetic on. I don't know. What are your thoughts of that? It's a nice thought. I, I don't know if I can make the adjustment. It might drive me nuts. Um, I've only really had problems with thumbnail, as I mentioned, uh, before gigs. And I'm, those are kind of easy to fix because you just grab a tip, shape it, glue it on, and get you through the gig. I broke my middle finger nail once before a gig. That was a disaster. But thankfully, because I have a pick, some pick skills, I just made up for it for that that night by using the pick more, you know. So there were some tunes I just didn't play that night for that reason. But um, yeah, the pick saved me there. If I didn't have pick skills, I'd be, you know, deep doo doo. <laughs> right. I can tell you, there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of nylon players that that don't have it. Well, let me ask you a couple of things. Let, let, let's talk about um, your, the strings that you use. Um, so, do you have fl flamenco guitars? Do you, do you have flamenco and flamenco strings, classical classical strings? I mean, what what intentions and what what all do you use? Uh, it's pretty much the uh, just what you would consider your average classical strings. I, I never really played a technical technically a uh, flamenco string that I like. I'm not a fan mm -hmm. of the black strings or the red strings or whatever those things are. So I, I end up using your average classical strings. Um, I for years, you know. Diodario EJ45s were the go-to string for everything. But depending on the guitar's top flexibility or the action, I, I could go from a normal tension to a hard tension string. So it just depends on the instrument. Um, but I also like uh, luthier strings, which are, they were endorsed by Paco de Lucia. One particular tension, I think it's uh, Concert Silver or L L30 or something is the model. Those strings are really great on certain guitars. They have really bright, they, they fall into tune super fast. So if you had to do a quick restring before a gig, within five songs, you're holding the tune. It's great. Um, but for the most part, your average classical guitar string is fine. And because I have to use a pickup at gigs, some sets tend to have a loud third string through the pickup, and that's annoying. Yeah. Right. Any imbalance with strings is just the worst thing on nylon string guitar. And it's, it's almost every night you got to deal with some weirdness because of humidity or something. So I, I found the Diodarios tend to have, even though the third string is kind of thicker than a lot of other companies, it tends to be better in volume through a pickup with the rest of the string. So I don't get that little bump in volume on the third string if you're running through a scale. That's just irritating. So I tend to use those a lot for that reason. Uh, but outside of that, if for recording, yeah, maybe luthiers, maybe some uh, labella, whatever seems to work good on that guitar. You know? Right. Well, let's talk a little about um, the guitars that you perform with and you record with. I, I, I know you've got some really amazing things. You, you work with some folks and they built some things, I think, for you. you know, tell, tell our listeners a little bit about what you play. Well, my main, main guitars, my, my favorite recording guitar right now is my uh, Herman Vasquez Rubio. It's a, uh, we, we, friends of mine, I have friends with uh, Jim Stubblefield, Dan Sistos, and Steven Doris, these guys. Uh, and they're, these guys kind of introduced me to, to Herman. Uh, and we call the guitar a Cedar X because it's, it's, it's a cedar top flamenco guitar, but underneath it has some unusual bracing. It's got an X-shaped type brace that goes over the top, something that you would see more like in a steel string. But the top is very flexible and it resonates beautifully. The guitar is so loud for a cutaway. It's unbel projects unbelievably. So that's been my favorite guitar. And, and it also happens to be a great guitar for recording. It's just an unbelievably clear, beautiful sounding guitar. It's so easy to mic. You just get the mic in one spot. Maybe just take out a touch at maybe 
eight, 900 Hertz, you know, a little bit there. And then it's perfect. Um, so it's been a great gig guitar and a great recording guitar, but I also have a Lester DeVoe that I record with a lot, which is uh, kind of a, it's a little bit beefier guitar. Um, amazing sound, super loud. It's also a cedar top. So you see where I'm going with the tops, right? I'm more of a cedar top guy than I am spruce. But I have a couple other guitars here from a, a guy named um, David Jimenez Rodriguez out of out of Spain. Okay. He's making some some nice uh, nylon string guitars as well. So I got two of his. I got a cutaway and another one there. And I've had the guitars from. Sorry, can't put that back. Uh, I have guitars also from a guy named Jorge de Sofia, who's also now in Spain. He used to live here in Florida, and he had made me some custom guitars here as well. Uh, but he's now living in Spain and working out of there. And he, he makes a really, really nice uh, cutaways and tremendously fast necks, really nice, comfortable, thin necks that you can just, just tear it up on. Right, right. You know, one of the questions I want to ask you is, uh, since you're making uh, acoustic sounds, I mean, ultimately, we're gonna, I'm going to talk about your, your live setup and your recording setup, but you're making acoustic sounds. When you're looking at an instrument, is playability more important than tone, or will you sacrifice or struggle with a great sounding instrument? Good question. Um, it depends on what I'm going to use it for. If it's for gigs, playability is equally important to tone. If I'm recording, then it's got to have the sound, and I'll deal with a tougher action at you know for recording. I don't mind that. I'm home. I can take a break if I need to. But if I'm doing a gig two, three, four hours and my, you know, it's going to wear you out if the playability isn't there. So the action's got to be pretty low for, for gigging type guitars. And they don't always have to have the best sound. As long as they, they're, you know, above average, I'd say that's fine. Um, and they sound good through the pickups. Now some guitars just don't sound good when they're amplified, you know, they just sound like plastic. Uh, so it, it comes down to, you know, that kind of thing. It's got to have Above average sound, but the playability has got to be there for gigs, for recording. It's all about the sound. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm going to ask record with a Robert Ruck classical, which is uh, you know a beast of a guitar. It's the you know beautiful sounding guitar. Action is really high. It's not action I'm used to playing anymore. It's classical action. It's three millimeters or more off the neck, and uh, so it's tough. But it sounds like a piano. It's beautiful. You know. Well, I, I didn't know you had a Ruck. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not fortunate to have one because they can't get them anymore, really. Yeah, right. How, what year do you think that one's from? Uh, mine's 2001. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I was just listening to, you know, Mamal Barwaco's famous three-CD set with a bowl on it in which he recorded that whole yeah, thing yeah. to tape from his yeah, Ruck. Yeah, that's <laughs> what was part of it. But the teacher that I that I had at the time had, had a Ruck, and he was like, you need to get on the wait list. Just get on it. And if you don't, you can't afford it at the time, you can't, but just get on it. So I waited eight and a half years for it and got it. And and funny enough, the mine, not that it means anything, but the uh, serial number is like one away from one of Barwaco's. So mine was built around the same time as something. I don't know if Barwaco still has this guitar or not, but I know at one point he had posted a picture on Facebook. And I'm like, oh, that serial number is just one less than mine. That was pretty cool. Oh, that's but, interesting. Uh, that's really interesting. Wow. Well, yeah, there was a time where Ruck was, was the... Uh, it was the box everybody wanted, yep. and and then it became uh, Humphreys. Everyone wanted the Humphreys box, you know. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah it, it's it, yeah. You'd go to GFAs, and that would be the conversation. Well, let me ask you about first. Let me ask you about your live setup because you talked about uh, how many shows you do. I mean, every time I see you in a normal year, I mean, you're gigging like you said six, eight shows a week, right? Yeah. Tell me about your live setup 
And here's here's what I'm interested in. First of all, what kind of pickup? Because I know you're really, really particular about the sound that you get, right? Yep. That how you process, but I'm also interested how you monitor. Because one of the things I think that a lot of electric and steel string players don't know is that we nylon play, we don't have a real big dynamic range. I mean, our, our range is, is somewhat more limited, right? Yeah, but yeah. in order to feel that energy, you've got to monitor well. So tell me about how you get to your tone and how you monitor. Okay. All right. That's a great question. Um, so you've been through been through the ringer with when it comes to pickups on nylon string guitars i've tried everything fishman k and k i mean the lr bags you name it uh they've all been good in some areas and really lacking in others so i don't know how long ago it was four or five years ago i start seeing talk about these carlos one systems he's a guy in germany making pickups for guitars and he's got kind of a I don't know, let's say unusual, but maybe unorthodox way of installing the pickup by, you know, he has a, it's a, first of all, the transducer is round. It's a coaxial wire that sits under the saddle. So it's round and he kind of creates a secondary channel in the slot for this wire to sit down in. And then the saddle comes in on top of it and it reduces a lot of the air that's around the saddle and the, uh, the pickup and in turn reduces the amount of feedback tremendously. So... I, you know, finally took a chance and order one and had a tough time installing it because it was tricky. Couldn't get it quite right. Kept messing with it, kept messing with it and kind of started to figure it out. Then started to talk to him about, well, could I be maybe one of your installers here in the U.S.? And eventually started doing pickup installs for, for other people. Uh, but what makes this system so interesting is that it's it just seems to be way more sensitive dynamically to what you're doing on the guitar there's no feedback problems and if they are they're very manageable with just a simple notch or just a high pass filter or something like that um so in addition to that coaxial pickup there's also a sound board transducer that's connected to it now it's not the typical one where it's like just a little metal thing that you you know kind of glued to the top it's inside a little carbon fiber box kind of reduces the amount of, I guess, energy or whatever the air it deals with inside, but it attaches to the top with a two-way tape. So you get a little bit of the wood sound mixed in with the with the pickup. I tend to blend it in a, like a 60% under saddle and maybe 40, maybe a 70-30 blend with the, with the soundboard top. Um, and you get just the right amount of wood and pick attack from that sound blended with the pickup, and it's very natural. It responds great. Uh, and that's been a blessing. They are very tricky to install. And I've been through every, you know, possible problem at this point, figuring out what to take to make this, the string balance even. And the slightest things can change the string balance tremendously. But once you get it right, it's great. And then and it's like the first pickup I've ever had where the bass strings actually come through a mix, you know, or a band or anything like that. And uh, but that that combination of those two those two pickups is really cool because you can really shape the tone the way you want it. You want it to sound a little bit more woody or a little bit more acoustic. You go with the, the soundboard. If you want to get a little bit more cut through the band, you go more with the transducer under the saddle. And I'm running this system through a Grace Designs. It's called the Felix. Yeah, I know. Two-channel yeah. preamp. And uh, it allows you to change the phase of either pickup. Which, because some guitars sound good when they're out of phase, some guitars sound good with them in phase, some guitars sound good with it, both of them reversed. It just depends on the, the venue and the system and the, the room, all that stuff. So, but uh, yeah, so running those two, so those two si signals going independently, you adjust, EQ them both separately, and then you blend them, and then uh, out it goes. 
And uh, it's been the best way to, to play for the last five years. Uh, and as for monitoring, pretty much I have my Bose system to my left. So it's like it's always hitting my ear pretty good. But if I'm in a noisy venue, I switch to an in-ear monitoring thing. So I'm using a, a QSC touch mix, the smallest touch mix board they have. I think it's a, an eight touch mix. Eight. So I can have a separate in-ear mix in my my ears that's stereo, which is nice because now I got stereo reverb. I got stereo effects going. It's like a studio in there. And I'll, and I'll blend blend the guitar a little bit lower in the track so it's not as irritating in my ear. But uh, so that's the savior for noisy gigs when they they you know they're telling you get you out turn it down so you're turning it down but everything around you is noisy as hell you can't hear yourself enough so you get you lose the interest in what you're doing. But you put the in ears in now it's this beautiful sound. I don't hear any of the noise outside of me, and that's how I can tolerate a noisy gig. Yeah, the Hollow Swan system and the uh, the Felix, the Grace Felix, are like the keys to the best nylon string amplification that I know of. You know, how do you power that uh, pickup system? Uh, just nine volt inside the guitar, and it exits through the, the bottom of the, the regular spot where most people do. Yeah, your typical jack down there where the strap would be, strap point would be right. right. So. Now, do you do a right angle plug? Do you or do you do straight eye? I've done both. Um, yeah. Right angle's better. It's just a little less stress on the jack. Right. Uh, and then plus, if you, I don't stand up when I play, so it's not. I'm not I don't. I don't run the risk of like stepping on my cable and, and really, you know, injuring that that uh, the jack. So it's not that critical to me to have one or the other. But if I was standing up, I definitely have a 90 degree angle, one that wouldn't torque that that connection right. that bad. Do you play classical position left knee up when you play? Yeah, that's a that's a weird one because I'm kind of like stuck in that classical style. So I have one of those guitar supports that sits on my left leg and I kind of sit in a classical position, even though I'm using the pick. So it's not ideal for pick because my arm is a little farther forward than I'd like it to be. I, you know, if I'm home recording and I'm using a pick, I'm sitting just in a chair with no guitar support. The guitar is more at an angle than my body and my arms relaxed. It's lower. But when you're using going between those two styles, I need needed to be a little bit more on that classical side. So my right hand feels comfortable. Yeah. Plus, easy on the back too. You sit there for four hours with your leg crossed or your leg up on a on a footstool, and your spine starts to hurt. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. In fact, I have two of those. Um, you know those uh, classical guitar chairs that fold up. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, someone got rid of two of them, and I, they are perfect for me. They're yeah. very thick pad. They're perfect. But uh, in fact, uh, Jason Vio travels with one. You know, Jason from Cleveland. Oh yeah, yeah. I love yeah. his. Uh, I first heard his his Metheny album where he did all these Pat Metheny songs and I, I was exquisite playing beautiful tone yeah is that the one he won the Grammy for probably did he deserved so if I don't know if he did or not but what I heard sound very deserved let me I, one question I have to ask you that I, I love to ask players do you have any I, I, the term in our culture now is hacks which I think diminishes it a little bit but as a uh, when you're gigging is there anything that you do that's like that's pretty cool that I do this like some use some common thing in a way that makes your playing easier or your your setup easier or is there anything you do that's like you could call a performance hack or a or a gigging hack um, uh, i'll you know i'll go the extra mile when it comes to the setup to, so the sound is good if I, I have one venue that i play on saturday nights it's the colony hotel here in delray um and it's kind of a, a long rectangle front patio to this hotel so it's a tough place to get the sound into I'm going to bring extra speakers just for this gig. I'll have two side speakers that are facing outward away from me. I have my bows in the middle, two side speakers. So I always go the extra mile with the setup. I want, if I'm going to sit there for four hours and play, 
and you're doing this night after night. I know it gets tiring moving gear, but to me, I want to have the best sound because when the sound is good, I enjoy my gigs no matter what. The sound is bad. I, you know, I, it's very frustrating. I lose interest kind of quickly in a gig when the sound is bad. So I'll go the extra mile there. And as far as playing, I don't know if I would call it a hack, maybe. There's definitely like some kind of typical riffs or maybe cheesy riffs that you can do that you just know are crowd pleasers. And if you feel like you're losing the audience a little bit, you can just execute one of these riffs or fast scales that, you know, have been done millions of times. Uh, and all of a sudden people are like, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I guess that kind of answers it. Right. 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 Well, you know, I, I think there's correct me if I'm wrong. There's a video of you playing in that hotel doing uh, casino. The great, and it's just unbelievable. Oh, not casino. That's in a, that was in a restaurant somewhere. Okay. That's the same gig I mentioned. All right. But boy, I'll tell you, I, I, that one really stood out. I mean, I just love that song and your, your take on it is incredible. So you've been listening to the Just Picks podcast, first installment of our interview with uh, Florida's Eric Hansen. And boy, Eric is just a wealth of information in terms of recording, playing, and all the technique associated with the, with the contemporary nylon guitar, um, kind of the smooth jazz, the Spanish jazz, and so on. Eric is just incredible. Join us in our next episode where we're going to get a little bit more into detail with regard to Eric's new album, Transcendence.